0: Right. Uh, welcome, one and all, to London School of Economics and to its best center, the Middle East Center. Thank you for turning out on this rather wintry night. I'm Toby Dodge, uh, the director of the Middle East Center, and it's my pleasure to be chairing this evening's lecture and book launch. We're gathered here this evening to celebrate the publication of Ian Black's new book, Enemies and Neighbors Arabs and Jews in Palestine and Israel, 1917 to 2000. And 17. Now, Ian is a visiting fellow at the Middle East Centre, and as you probably know better, he was uh, the former Middle East editor, diplomatic editor, and European editor at the Guardian newspaper. And at the Guardian in recent years, he's reported and commentated extensively on the Arab uprisings and their aftermath in Syria, in Lebanon, in Lebanon and in Egypt, and across the Middle East region. And on the last day of his job at the Guardian, he came to interview me at the Middle East Centre, and told me that he'd done a PhD under what now counts for academic Middle East royalty, Eli Kadori. So I said, you know, you've had a, a bit of an uneventful career after you left the uh, uh, LSE. Why not come back and do something interesting? And this is the result, a, a rather wonderful book. I think we're very lucky to be, um, to, to be able to host, to, to give Ian a billet. Now, Ian in the book says, it's, this is the Arab-Israeli dispute is the most closely studied conflict on earth and even though Ian argues that quote I have learnt as much reporting from the streets of Nablus and Gaza during the first intifada as from poring over declassified files or old newspapers in the archives of Jerusalem and London having read this book I would argue that doesn't do it credit I think it's incredibly well written it's a hybrid I think it's, it's steeped in history and knowledge But a bit like Ian himself, I think it's it's very balanced, reasoned and thoughtful. I find either everyone will find something to disagree with, but I don't think anyone would be angry. Now, from this point of view, Ian's going to talk for around 30 minutes and then we're also lucky to welcome another distinguished guest, Sir Tom Phillips, the Commandant of the Royal College of Defence Studies. In his former career, when he was in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, not in the Ministry of Defence, he was a British diplomat where he served as Ambassador ...to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, I think much more uh, appositely for tonight... ...ambassador to Israel and High Commissioner to Uganda. So Ian will speak for about half an hour. So Tom will speak for half an hour. Uh, Oh no, sorry, for ten minutes. Thank you, that scared (laughs) him. And then we'll throw um, the uh, event open to questions. Now two things to keep in mind. Firstly, you might have noticed as you came in... ...that the books are being sold outside for the bargain price... Of 25 pounds and of course Ian is very worried so the more books that he sells the better the lecture and the greater the chance we will invite him back to speak again and once you've bought the book but only if you do buy the book there's a free glass of wine uh, courtesy of the public uh, the, the publishers for you to consume and to browbeat Ian further about his talk but without further ado can you clap bring your hands together to welcome Ian Black and his book.
1: Toby, thank you very much for that very charming introduction. It's been, it's been great to have uh, been this last year and a half or so a visiting fellow at, uh, at LSE. It's very different from what it was when I was a student here a long time ago, but it's very, very welcoming, and it's great to see such a, a good uh, turnout this evening. It's also nice to see so many familiar and friendly faces in the audience. Now, it's only a coincidence, but today um, is November the 29th, and many of you will know that, that is quite a striking uh, date because it's the 70th anniversary of one of the most important decisions ever taken in the history of the Palestine-Israel uh, conflict. It was then in uh, 1947 that the United Nations General Assembly decided to partition Palestine uh, into separate Jewish and uh, Arab states. Now, we could easily spend the whole of this session talking about the significance of that or of other memorable dates or indeed of other Uh, the many UN resolutions that attach to uh, this story. And there's no shortage of either of them. Now, unless you've been in outer space for the last few weeks, you can't fail to have noticed that we've just seen the uh, centenary of the Balfour Declaration of 1917, the 2nd of November. That was when, of course, the British government famously or infamously pledged to promote the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. And it, of course, added the qualification that nothing must be done to prejudice the civil and religious rights of its existing non-Jewish communities, who at the time made up around 90% of the population. And it really is remarkable how there are significant events in the seventh year of every decade um, for the last 120 years. 1897 saw the first Zionist Congress, a small minority movement responding to increasing Uh, anti-Semitism and persecution in Eastern Europe and began to organize itself to argue that Jews were a nation with a right to their own homeland uh, and not just members of a religious minority uh, living in many different countries across the world. By that time there were maybe two to three thousand Jews who defined themselves as Zionists, lovers of Zion as they called themselves, uh, living in Ottoman Palestine as distinct from the native existing Jewish community of the country. Um, The Balfour Declaration was obviously a hugely important landmark. In 1927, there was a devastating earthquake in Palestine which killed about 300 people and caused a lot of damage, although, of course, that was a natural disaster rather than the man-made ones that we've come to associate with the Holy Land. Um, 1937 was the date of the report by the British Peel Commission uh, which recommended that Palestine be partitioned into separate Jewish and Arab states because its two peoples were in a state of irrepressible uh, conflict and because their national aspirations were incompatible. 1947 saw the UN decision uh, I've just mentioned. That of course was the prelude to the war of 1948, to Israel's independence and what the Palestinians called their Nakba disaster or catastrophe when 700 to 750,000 uh, people became refugees. Nineteen fifty seven, just to spoil the pattern, was quite quiet, though Israel evacuated the Sinai Desert after capturing it uh, from Egypt and the Suez War of the previous year, and that was under uh, very heavy American pressure of a sort that subsequently has never been uh, repeated. The war of nineteen sixty seven, whose jubilee was, jubilee was in this was this June, was a watershed event whose consequences are visible today. Uh, nineteen seventy-seven, another seventh year of Another decade saw the rise of the Likud party in Israel, the uh, right-wing party. Uh, It also saw the taboo-breaking visit to Jerusalem by President Anwar Sadat of uh, Egypt. 1987 was the start of the first Palestinian uh, intifada, uprising in the occupied territories. In 1997, a man who was not so well-known then, he was a first-term prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, Uh, carried out a partial Israeli withdrawal from the West Bank city of Hebron. That was the last time, by the way, that anything happened in what was supposed to be the interim stage of the Oslo peace accords uh, between Israel and the PLO. 2007 saw the uh, Hamas Islamic movement take over the Gaza Strip. 2017, it seems to me, barring further unpleasant surprises in the month or so that remains, Uh, is probably likely to be remembered as the year Donald Trump became President of the United States. I am, as I sometimes say, quite braced for 2027. Now, anniversaries like this are occasions for commemoration, celebration, mourning, protests, depending on where your sympathies uh, lie. But they can also be useful opportunities to revisit a familiar story, to reflect on the links between past and present, uh, and to get a sense of what constitutes current historical memory. And that fundamentally is what prompted me to write this, uh, this book. I was amazed, personally, by the resonance of the Balfour Centenary, fascinated by the way the British government, uh, which admittedly has some very serious uh, distractions, squirmed and contradicted itself over whether to mark uh, the centenary or to celebrate it, and how in the end it compromised by deciding only to mark it, but to do so, as Theresa May, Theresa May said, with pride. And that was a reminder, if one were needed, of how live and divisive and toxic and intractable, the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict remains. And I was also struck thinking and writing about Balfour in detail in the run-up to uh, the publication of my book, which was very neatly and pleasingly on November the 2nd itself, that actually in one sense there wasn't very much new to say. Uh, The hard facts have been known for more than half a century. About a decade ago, an American historian uh, came up with the discovery that Britain had secretly discussed making peace with the Ottomans in the course of 1917. Now, that came to nothing in the end. But if it had done, then the Balfour Declaration would almost certainly not have been made. And that new knowledge, in a sense, reinforced the uh, familiar point about the contingent nature of events. Nothing was preordained or inevitable. The British government wanted to win the First World War, and it wanted to secure the benefits of the peace, and to defeat its enemies and to outsmart its allies, of course, especially the French. But the fateful 67-word pledge of the Balfour Declaration made to the Zionist movement really can't be understood without taking that background into account. And more generally, the facts of this story are pretty well established. Um, The beginning of Zionist settlement in Palestine during the late Ottoman period, the way the Balfour Declaration was incorporated verbatim, into the League of Nations mandate uh, for Palestine, which created an international legal framework for what happened next, but at the same time it ignored uh, Arab opposition, which was clear and vociferous. Uh, The structure of British rule is now, I think, well understood, particularly the failure to advance any kind of representative government um, for the majority of the population. The impact of Jewish immigration... The rebellion, the Arab rebellion of 1936-1939, one of the more heroic chapters in Palestinians' history um, that was crushed by the British. In the Second World War, Zionist demands hardened, particularly as news came through of what was happening in the death camps uh, of Eastern Europe. We know without any dispute how many Palestinians became refugees in 1948. We know how many Arab villages were destroyed uh, in its wake. We know how many Jews arrived as refugees from Arab countries in the wake of Israel's independence. And we know the same, broadly speaking, there aren't any great mysteries anymore about the rise of the PLO, the way that it maneuvered in the Arab world in the late 1950s. It's fascinating to see how the different sides looked at each other, perceptions, so Fatah, the Palestine Liberation Movement founded by Yasser Arafat and his colleagues was initially seen and dismissed by the Israelis in the early 60s as nothing more than an arm of the Syrian regime. Jordan, which you may know had annexed the West Bank, what we today call the West Bank in 1950, didn't tolerate any kind of Palestinian nationalism uh, either. Palestinians also had very little understanding of Israel at that point. Mahmoud Abbas, the current President of the Palestinian Authority, makes a a lot in his very interesting memoirs about how it mattered to him. He was a refugee from Safad in Galilee uh, in 1948, how little Palestinians understood about Israel and how much opposition there was in the ranks of Fatah amongst his own colleagues to actually finding out too much about it. It was a question of knowing the enemy, but also being perhaps confused uh, by what you would learn. That was a very controversial issue. It wasn't until 1970 when a Palestinian citizen of Israel, a man called Sabri Jiris, who had been detained without trial in Israel, was allowed to leave the country, move to Beirut, where the PLO was then based, and he made a very significant contribution then and subsequently to Palestinian understanding uh, of Israel. So why, you may well be asking yourselves, have I written yet another account of this wearily familiar story. The literature on it is vast and it is growing constantly. It already felt like that, to be honest, when I first started studying it seriously about 40 years ago. Uh, today, I'm told that more PhDs are written on the subject of Palestine than on any other subject in the, uh, the Middle East. Hundreds of books are published on it every year in English and Hebrew and Arabic. Th- nevertheless, for reasons I hope I've explained now, 2017 seemed like a good moment to look at this uh, story. Um, And surprisingly, perhaps, there are not many books, or certainly not many good books, that look at the whole history uh, of the conflict from its origins to the uh, present day. Um, And those that do tend to be quite narrowly focused and also quite a lot longer than mine, which comes in at a modest, I think, 600-something and pages. (laughs) Now, it also seems to me that it is helpful to take the long view. Past is prologue. It is useful to know, for example, that the Ezzedine al-Khassam brigades, as the military wing of Hamas in the Gaza Strip, are named after a charismatic Muslim preacher who was killed fighting the British in 1935. It's vital to understand that the 300,000 or so Jews who arrived in Palestine in the course of the 1930s, immigrants and settlers, were also refugees who were fleeing persecution and mostly had nowhere else to go. It is relevant that David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, and the dominant figure of its early years, described it as a source of lamentation for generations when Israeli forces failed to capture East Jerusalem and the West Bank during the War of 1948, providing, I think, a very useful uh, link to what was to happen later after 1967. It matters, it really does, to be able to understand the differences between what happened in the first and second intifadas and the effects of them on both sides. My larger ambition, I would say, was to try to tell the story of the conflict of and from both those sides. Now, others will have to judge whether I've succeeded in doing that. It's certainly difficult to do, uh, but it is possible, I think, if you build on those now largely agreed facts about what happened and, crucially, acknowledge that the mainstream narratives, how people on both sides see and remember and tell their own stories, are so very different. Now, attempts have been made over the years to try to integrate them, but they always end up having to be printed on parallel pages because they're simply irreconcilable. The best way to explain it is very very, uh, succinct. Uh, In English, it's Israel's independence was the Palestinians' disaster. I once heard a Palestinian tell an Israeli friend of mine, on Israel's Independence Day. Your Independence Day is our Nakba, our disaster. The Palestinian American historian Rashid Khalidi put it very well, I thought, when he acknowledged that Zionism constituted a movement of national liberation for Jews, but which achieved what it did at the expense of the Palestinians. The current focus in the academic world, including here at LSE, I think, on the concept of settler colonialism, using the lessons from European settlement in Australia, Canada, and so on, um, as the best current framework for understanding the conflict, it needs, in my view, to take that observation into account, Rashid Khalidi's observation. Many Israelis and Zionists see the country as their ancestral homeland. Uh, By contrast, Israel is seen today by many Palestinians and many others as what one recently described, and I quote, as an ethnocratic state built on the ruins of another country to serve one group at the expense of another. Now, each narrative is authentic. It's real, even if it's dismissed by the other side as propaganda or lies. Neither of them can be ignored. The conflict between these two peoples, in my view, can only be understood by paying attention to how they see themselves and their history as well as each other. Now, the signposts of the complex, the landmarks, they're, they're pretty familiar. Wars, diplomacy, uprisings, violence, negotiations, high politics. They obviously can't be ignored. But I do try to go beyond those to look at ordinary life and ordinary people, how they lived both together or at least side by side, but increasingly separately as time went on. separation was a very significant theme on the Zionist side of the story from very early on. It was encapsulated in campaigns for Hebrew labor, Hebrew produce, and that was one of this conflict's most distinguishing characteristics. Economic relations and economic disparities were very important as well, especially after 1967. Popular culture, literature, even jokes can provide insights too. Language and how it is used can tell us a lot. Uh, For example, there are famous songs in Arabic and Hebrew about Jerusalem, the Arabic one is by Farouz, the famous Lebanese singer. The uh, Hebrew one is by a woman called Naomi Shemer, who was very famous in Israel. Um, both of them completely ignore the presence of the other people. It's really quite striking, but that is a very common habit. Um, the last British High Commissioner to Palestine was a man called Sir Alan Cunningham. He left uh, May 1948 in inglorious uh, circumstances, but he put. Uh, his finger on it very well just a few weeks after the end of the mandate that year, uh, he said, one of the most remarkable phenomena in the handling of policy in Palestine was that neither Jew nor Arab in their approach to the problem would ever refer to the other. And it would seem as if they ignored each other's very existence. It's a fact that Haj Amin al-Husseini, who was the Mufti of Jerusalem, the leader of the Palestinians for certainly through the 1920s and 30s and arguably later, uh, never met Ben-Gurion, who was the leader of the Zionist movement, the leader of the Yeshuv, the Jewish community in Palestine at the time. They never, ever once met. And one last word about what I'm trying to do here is about the geographical setting. The story begins in 1917. As I've said, it goes back to 1882, the beginning of Zionist settlement, and it continues uh, up to the present day at some point earlier this year as my immovable deadline loomed and I really had to stop. And of course, it's already out of date. Uh, But the action of the book takes place in Palestine and Israel. It's not intended to be, and it cannot be, at the same time, a comprehensive history of the Arab-Israeli conflict or of international efforts to deal with it. There is a vast literature uh, on that already. One otherwise complimentary reviewer took me to task for uh, failing to go into what President Truman did uh, in the crucial years of the late 1940s. I I plead guilty to that, it's true, I didn't. I've had to leave out quite a lot of uh, things. In order to focus on the place itself, to look at what happened in Jerusalem and Nablus and Hebron and Haifa and Gaza and so on, and not in Damascus and Cairo and Amman and Washington and London, I wanted to focus on the core, the places and the people and the issues that they were fighting over. So what have I got to say that's new? Good question. Good question. So I followed this story for many years and from different angles over a long time. So in the early 1970s, I did time uh, in the archives and libraries looking in detail at the formative period of the 1930s and being awarded indeed a PhD from this august institution. Uh, From late 1976, I started reporting on it as a journalist. Uh, The occupation of the West Bank and Gaza was then uh, less than a decade old. It was challenging and it was difficult, but I learned a lot quite quickly quickly, I think at quite a young age. I vividly remember Sadat's visit to Jerusalem in 1977 and the uh, Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982, which was another uh, big moment uh, in the development of this story. Uh, The first intifada was uh, an electrifying time, and I left just before the Oslo agreement in 1993. So I followed it closely, and I've returned to it sporadically ever since recent years in the wider context of the Middle East. So when I embarked on this book project three three, three and a half or so years ago, I I was revisiting a familiar subject, but I was looking at, wanted to look at new research and taking in recent developments. And that has changed, perhaps deepened, I hope, some of my understanding and some of the emphases in this book. And just in terms of time, I'll go through a few of those, and Toby or you get fed up, I'll stop. But so on some of, the, some of the issues where I found it interesting to, as I say, to revisit uh, familiar subjects, uh, I've got a, half a dozen or so in chronological order. So on the Zionist side, I would argue there was a very clear realization of the severity and the intractability of the conflict even before the First World War and the Balfour Declaration. I came across an amazing uh, uh, article written by a Palestinian journalist. His name was Abdallah Mukhlis He was from Haifa, in, now in northern Israel. And in March 1910, he wrote an article in a, a newspaper called al uh, Muktabas, which was published in Damascus. And uh, he describes how a new soap factory had been built in Haifa uh, by the Jews. And it was only employing Jewish workers. And he complained that Jews who were then about a fifth of the city's population were starting to interact exclusively with members of their own community. And he he wrote, establishing a Jewish state after thousands of years of decline, we, the Arabs, fear that the new settler will expel the indigenous and we will have to leave our country en masse. We shall then be looking back over our shoulder and mourn our land as did the Muslims of Andalusia. Morfis expressed the hope that Jews would remain part of Ottoman society and abandon their separatist ways. Palestine may be endangered, he wrote. In a few decades it might witness a struggle for survival. I thought it was remarkable, 1910. I came across also an amazingly interesting quotation, actually in an existing uh, long book published long ago, from a man called Harry Sacker. I don't know if you know that name. He was quite a well-known British Zionist official. He worked very closely with uh, Chaim Weizmann, who was the leader of the Zionist movement, was the man who was told um, uh, the news of the Balfour Declaration. So Harry Sacker wrote, in June 1917... Note the date, just five months, four or five months before the Balfour Declaration. So he wrote, even if all our political schemings turn out the way we desire, the Arabs will remain our most tremendous problem. I don't want us in Palestine to deal with the Arabs as the Poles deal with the Jews and with the lesser excuse that belongs to a numerical minority. Now, traditional accounts of the early years of the conflict have always made much of the 1918 agreement made between Chaim Weizmann and emir faisal emir faisal you will know i'm sure was the uh, son of the sharif hussein of mecca the man who had led the arab revolt against the turks so weizmann met uh, emir faisal in Aqaba, now in uh, jordan's southern port in 1918 and basically they agreed that uh, faisal would express support for jewish immigration into uh, into uh, palestine on the basis of arab jewish cooperation but, of course, um, that depended on the attainment of the Arab independence, which Sharif Hussein of Mecca and his sons, including Faisal, believed, it turned out not to be correct, had been promised by the perfidious British. That's another story, and we won't go there right now. Um, but, so that agreement, the Weizmann-Faisal agreement, uh, was almost, from the very beginning, was a dead letter. But it featured for years, many years, and in some places still does, in Israeli versions of the story as an example of a tragically missed opportunity and the sort of way in which agreement could have been uh, reached. It's actually relevant in the current context of the, increasingly what we hear of hopes for some kind of normalization of ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia, actually, that idea that Arab states will come to terms with Israel but ignore the interests of the Palestinians who, of course, are at the, uh, at the very heart of the conflict with, uh, with Israel. Um, and in those early years, the, what the Zionists called the Arab question uh, was not, as it was once famously described, an unseen question. There's a famous article uh, with that uh, title. Now, different things were said about it in public and in private. The basic hope was that the British would deal with Arab opposition to the Zionist project. In time, of course, the most effective answer to Arab opposition was the development of a military and intelligence capability by the Yishuv, by the Jewish community, in the form of the Haganah and the Palmach, which became the Israeli army after 1948. And again, it's important to look at critical voices that are not sufficiently often heard, certainly in the official version of events. There was a man called Hans Cohen, who later became a very famous scholar, a scholar of nationalism, and he lived in Palestine in the 1920s. I think he was either German or Austrian originally. Um, in 1929, you will remember, perhaps, was a bad year in terms of the escalating conflict, the serious violence uh, that year, sometimes been called the year zero of the conflict, because it was a very bad moment when the dimensions of the national clash became, uh, became painfully clear. So Hans Cohen was a supporter of an organization called Brit Shalom," that was it means "Covenant of peace." In Hebrew. It was a dovish, we call it today, a dovish organization which believed in coexistence with dialogue with uh, the, uh, the Arabs. And he was writing in 1929 after the events of that year in which I think about 170 Jews were killed and a smaller number of Arabs were killed by the British. And he wrote, I cannot concur with official Zionist policy, when the Arab national national movement is being portrayed as the wanton agitation of a few big landowners. I know that frequently the most reactionary imperialist press in England and France portrays the national movements in India, China, and Egypt in a similar fashion. In short, wherever the national movements of oppressed peoples threaten the interests of the colonial power, I know how false and hypocritical this portrayal is. We pretend, he meant we, the... Jewish community to be innocent victims. Of course, the Arabs attacked us in August. Since they have no armies, they could not obey the rules of war. They perpetrated all the barbaric acts that are characteristic of a colonial revolt. But we are obliged to look into the deeper cause of this revolt. We have been in Palestine for 12 years. 12 years takes us back to 1917. Without having once even made a serious attempt, even once made a serious attempt at seeking through negotiations, the consent of the indigenous people. We have been relying exclusively upon Great Britain's military might. We have set ourselves goals which by their very nature had to lead to conflict with the Arabs. We ought to have recognized that that these would be the just cause of a national uprising against us. We pretended that the Arabs did not exist. I found that a very powerful uh, passage from somebody who was on the margins, it has to be said, important to remember, of uh, the uh, then-Jewish society. Palestinians made terrible mistakes. It is agreed by all Palestinian historians worthy of the name these days that it was uh, a grave error to reject the British White Paper of 1939. Why do I mention that? It, that all but stopped Jewish immigration and land sales, and it marked a definitive retreat from the idea that there would be a Jewish state in Palestine. Um, It was, of course, a tragic moment for the Jews because it came at the very moment that the Second World War was about to uh, begin and Hitler's final solution. The Arab majority in Palestine missed, nevertheless, an opportunity to salvage something for itself from the wreckage of the preceding 20 years of the mandate and catch up, indeed, with what was happening in the other mandated territories in Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, and even Transjordan and move towards some degree of self-government. But of course, even more important than that was the Palestinian rejection of the UN plan of November 1947, whose anniversary falls today. Uh, My view is that that was also a mistake, but an understandable mistake, because it was based on the refusal to accept that more than half the territory of Palestine be handed over to another people who were seen as foreign settlers who were coming without the consent of the native majority. The decision was also arguably based on a misreading of the international circumstances at the end of the Second World War, the beginning of the Cold War, uh, guilt about what had happened uh, to the Jews during the war. The UN decision, it's worth remembering, was supported by the United States and the Soviet Union at that time. Understanding of the War of 1948, which is a crucial moment, has changed significantly uh, in the last couple of decades. It remains the source of bitter controversy, as many of you will know. Uh, there's been passionate debate between a group of Israeli historians who describe themselves as new historians because they broke with the preceding nationalist consensus. They were able to use the archives, people like Benny Morris, Ilan Pape, Abi Schleim, you may be familiar with the names. Uh, my own conclusion looking at this debate and looking at the vast literature on the subject is that the outcome of the war mattered far more than the intentions which are very hard to pin down in a definitive uh, sense. Palestinians, of course, often say that they didn't need the revelations of Israel's new historians to know what had happened in the uh, Nakba, although a lot of new documentary evidence did uh, emerge. Now, oral history has been used considerably, in recent years to fill the gaps on the Palestinian side. And I have done a lot of that as well. Um, Now, it was Pape who famously introduced the concept of ethnic cleansing, which was first used in relation to the war in Bosnia in the early 1990s. And of course, it's taken on a very polemical uh, meaning on this most neuralgic of subjects, though it is true that words like cleaning and broom were used by the Israelis at the time. There is no evidence of an Israeli master plan for the expulsion of the Palestinians, as is sometimes claimed. though there were plenty of expulsions. And there was a mindset that favored expulsions in the circumstances, the facilitating circumstances of war. And the cleansing was not complete. Uh, the outcome was messy. The key fact, and this is my takeaway from this difficult subject, The key factor is that the Palestinian refugees were, by and large, never allowed to return by the Israelis, and the right of return, of course, remains a key demand of the Palestinians. It also seemed to me that the um, impact of the Nakba is too often overlooked in histories of the conflict. I tried to make up for that to some extent by devoting a chapter to its aftermath and to the central role that it played in the development of Palestinian uh, national consciousness, Uh, identity and, of course, politics. Uh, I do believe that Israelis and their supporters often have a very limited understanding uh, of that. It's received a lot more attention in recent years. There's a fascinating organization in Israel called Zohrot. It means roughly something like remembrance, which makes it its business to catalog what happened to the villages and the urban areas of Arab Palestine and to commemorate them. That's obviously a political hot potato uh, and it hasn't done anything really at all to change the attitudes of Jewish Israelis, but it reflects that uh, growing awareness of the subject. And I also pay close attention from 1948 onwards to the Palestinians who became the Palestinian minority inside uh, Israel because they provide then, and more so now, quite a rare human connection between two peoples who still, by and large, uh, ignore each other. Um, So a few more points. So I think it is important half a century around to emphasize the consequences of the Israel's victory in 1967. Uh, Early Jewish critics of the occupation, a famous philosopher and scientist called Yashayel Leibovitz was one of them. There was a small Marxist group called Matzpen was another. Old-fashioned Jewish liberals made the same point. They warned of the moral and political risks of occupation and what it would do uh, to Israeli society. At the time, famously Moshe Dayan, who was the, you remember, was the one-eyed hero and Israel's defense minister in 1967, announced that he was waiting for a telephone call from wherever, from Amman, from Cairo. Um, That telephone call never came, or it never came in any public sense, uh, perhaps more precisely. And the Israeli cabinet in July 1967 discussed the future of the recently occupied territories, and it talked about peace with Egypt and with Syria and with Jordan, Uh, but it decided not to decide what to do about the Palestinians. Uh, That's very, very well documented by now. I think we know everything there is to know about it. It's very important also in 67 to trace the beginnings of the development of the settlements, uh, which is still uh, uh, such an important feature of the uh, conflict. Uh, One recent book, quite a good book actually, uh, titled itself uh, The Accidental Empire. Uh, It's a bit like the way the the British Empire is sometimes described as having been acquired in a fit of absence of mind. The evidence on the Israeli side is that some very, very deliberate decisions were actually taken, uh, often uh, involving subterfuge, when the Labour Party was still in power, by the way. Um, So I've deliberately refrained from writing a first-person account. But my own reporting certainly influenced my approach in this book to the the very high drama of the first intifada. It was a hugely important period. It was fascinating personally, professionally. It did a lot to draw attention to the Palestinian cause. It restored their sense, I think, of agency after 20 years of uh, occupation. It showed Israelis the cost of maintaining the status quo. It also created a problem for the PLO, which by then you may remember was – uh, based, uh, It was no longer in Lebanon. It had been driven out of Lebanon in the War of 1982. It was in f- far away in uh, Tunisia. So what began as a spontaneous uh, eruption by Palestinians in the occupied territories uh, meant that the PLO felt it was actually slightly losing control of things. And the background of that, I think, explains something of what was to happen a few years later when the Oslo Peace Agreement was made. And crucially, that – involved Israel recognizing uh, the PLO. And I think arguably, and there's good evidence for this, the PLO and Yasser Arafat in particular, who embodied the Palestinian cause, was so desperate to secure that recognition that he agreed to things in Oslo which stood, which were problematic, controversial at the time, and it was arguable whether they would lead to a permanent uh, uh, settlement, peace settlement with Israel. and Oslo became a trap for the PLO, there's no question about it. I think it had given up the armed struggle, uh, but it hadn't got an independent state. It didn't, unlike the ANC in South Africa, therefore transform into a ruling party. Uh, and as my friend, sc- Palestinian scholar Ahmed Khalidi, put it very well recently, it was a liberation movement after 1993 that wasn't doing much liberating anymore. Um, so one last point is that we need to talk a little bit about negotiations, and I know Tom will want to talk about this too, but it's quite difficult to come up with a definitive account of some of the key moments in recent years. For example, the Camp David summit of 2000, when Bill Clinton uh, was in charge, there was certainly some movement, but it's also clear that the maximum Israeli concessions fell short of, uh, of, of minimum Palestinian demands. It's also quite clear that each side sought to blame the other, The Americans and the Israelis ganged up on the Palestinians and uh, blamed them. What is absolutely certain is that the second intifada, which came a short time afterwards, killed off um, peace hopes for a very long time. It was also a devastating blow to the dovish left uh, in Israel. The Palestinian Authority was further weakened when Arafat died in 2004 and the Hamas takeover of Gaza – Israeli governments since 2001 have been increasingly right wing. Unilateral decisions that it has taken, like the 2005 disengagement, they called it, from Gaza, are not solutions, as the plight of Gaza today, two million people living in appalling circumstances, shows very clearly. Um, and, you know, there are other moments. Could they have reached peace between Abbas and Ehud Olmert in 2008? Interesting argument, not enough evidence. If Sharon, Ariel Sharon, who pulled out of Gaza, had not then suffered a near-fatal stroke, would he have followed that with some kind of unilateral pullout from the West Bank? We'll never know. I think that Sharon's reputation as a dove was exaggerated. Myself, I don't think he would have done anything significant to advance the cause of Palestinian uh, independence. The current Israeli Prime Minister, Netanyahu, uh, the most that he's prepared to support is what he's called A state minus. Um, And a final thought. And a final thought is that (laughs) about negotiations in the future, Palestinians have negotiated on the basis of where things stood after 1948, when Israel was in control of 78% of Palestine, and the assumption from the late 1980s onwards that they would get their state in the 22% of the country that remained. Uh, Israelis have negotiated on the basis of the post-1967 occupation uh, and want to see how much of that they can keep. That's the fundamental clash. Um, 600,000 Israeli settlers now live beyond the pre-1967 border. Um, Between the Mediterranean coast and the River Jordan, the numbers of Jews and Arabs are about equal, about 6.3 million People each. Uh, it's hardly surprising that the word apartheid is uh, increasingly bandied around in political circles in Israel. It is very hard, uh, despite Trump's talk of the deal of the century, to see uh, any prospects of meaningful progress towards peace any time
0: soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. There you go. Add your own thoughts and tell these good people why, or more intriguingly, why they shouldn't buy this wonderful
2: book. Ah, right. They should certainly buy this book because it's a, uh, you know, somebody who knows something of the history. I think it's an extremely fair, balanced, down-the-line uh, account of a very, very complex bit of history. Um, the, the potential reason not to buy it is it doesn't give the answer to the problem. <coughs> Um, and I read to the end, and it was as gloomy as I feel about it. So, But if you like gloom, then I suppose it's a great book uh, to buy. I, I, I used to tell my staff when I was out there as ambassador that they had a personal, moral, and political responsibility to try and understand the whole situation, to see it whole. But the problem was that it would blow their mind. It would be really difficult. Um, but the reason it was about the most interesting posting, probably the most interesting posting in my diplomatic career, was because you can't go there without having to think through, you know, a lot of stuff professionally, but a lot of stuff personally about. Whichever country you're coming from, you're going to be challenged by something that you find out there, including, you know, for a Brit, the anti-Semitism in our own country that is there in the history. You know, we were the first European country to throw Jews out in 1290, 1290, I think, or 1299, Um, and so on and so forth. Of course, you know... the Holocaust itself um, predates, uh, post-dates uh, Zionism, but it predates the establishment of the state of Israel and, of course, in Western eyes at least, created a huge moral argument for the state, even, of course, not in Palestinian and uh, Arab eyes. I don't think the mandate period, to be honest, was the uh, smoothest and most honourable in all of British um, foreign policy. Um, it had its ups and downs, and, of course, it was based on a, basically an imperial vision of the world that's now quite alien to us but i think the peel commission this moment in 1937 and the peel commission report is still really worth reading it's the first time i think that the brits we brits had the courage to look this thing in the face and say we're dealing here with two valid nationalisms and the only answer is a two-state solution very interesting map not at all like the one of the un or any now uh uh, on the table that it uh, put out there uh and of course you know as always, the Peel Commission didn't get anywhere, uh, and it was pretty quickly abandoned by the British government itself. Leading up to the, the White uh, Commission, the 13, 1939 one that Ian has mentioned, but you know, I think that recognition that two-state solution is the right solution um, still holds, because um, I, I can't see any other solution uh, to it. I think all the when you look at all the confederal models, one-state models, whatever, they all founder for me on the crunch issue of. Uh, the demographic uh, issue and the who controls what issue and in any case I think it's too late uh, but, but in any case I think it's too late for a two state solution now. I mean I was around uh, at the beginning of the 1990s uh, at this through the Gulf War, I was in Israel, Gulf War uh, Madrid, start of the Oslo process and then in Washington for four years dealing with the Middle East uh, in the embassy there and was there when Rabin died and I think I and the Americans I was with at the time knew that the moment Rabin was taken out of the equation, this, this thing has really, really got a major problem. That was a unique moment when the security credentials of Rabin and the imagination of Perez and his, his team came together, and you never had that, that balance um, again. Um, so uh, then I went back 2006 to 10, so I saw Annapolis uh, through to that moment of the Olmert offer to Abbas. I think that is a fascinating moment, and... Um, I do understand, I think, why it failed, but it was a very, very interesting offer. And the first time the Israelis envisaged internationalization of the Jerusalem issue, which is a really critical uh, part of the equation. Um, but And then we had uh, the Kerry uh, Initiative, which in my mind repeated every mistake uh, in the book and was doomed to failure from the start. Um, I now, The reasons I think a two-state solution won't get anywhere, I, I wrote a prospect article in 2012, I won't go over it now, which listed... 10 or 12 reasons why I thought there were, might never be peace uh, between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And in, in essence, it's to do with you know, both dysfunctional political systems, both hampered political systems. The fact that you need a third party to do it, it can only be the Americans, because the Israelis won't trust anyone else, and the Americans can never be a fully fair uh, intermediary in the room. They'll never be trusted by the Palestinians. The scale of the settlement enterprise to which Ian. Uh, has uh, referred. I can't imagine any Israeli government able to come to grips with what that means in the body politic in, in Israel. The fact that the international community as a whole has never actually wanted it well enough. And then the sheer timing factor. There seems to be a rule out there that something will always go wrong with the timing just when you get somewhere, again, as it came through a little bit in what Ian said. So I think the most likely scenario is that we will now limp along in conflict management mode. Uh, until something really ghastly happens, most likely in Jerusalem, which will jolt everybody, I don't know where to, but maybe a new level of seriousness, but maybe to something much nastier than that. I think that um, one of the reasons I give why I don't think uh, we're ever going to see peace is because all the peace processes start with an incremental basis. Let's do the easy stuff first and get to the hard stuff. For once, I think that's wrong. Sometimes in military terms, you don't do the flanks. You have to go to the center, and when the center goes, the wings fold too. And the center of this dispute is Jerusalem and the right of return. And I personally think you have to start with that, and then the rest is relatively easy. But they really, really are the hardest issues, because they go to the hearts of the meaning and identity issues that are at the heart um, of this thing. Um, Of course, there is now, I think, uh, the possibility of a renewed regional um, angle. It was a a rare privilege for a Foreign Office diplomat to go from Tel Aviv to Riyadh, and quite a shock, actually. Um, A shock because it wasn't that different. Um, you know, you're, you go from one country where you feel you're surrounded by people who want to kick us into the sea, <coughs> blah, 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 life is terribly difficult, the awful Iranians. You go to another country, you know, we're surrounded by awful Shia who want to kick us in the sea, and oh, we don't like the Iranians, and do we really trust the Americans? And actually, there's a huge amount of similarities, two holy lands, two chosen people, etc. There are differences, of course, between the two societies. But there, it was quite interesting in a security sense. And so the fact that actually there are shared strategic interests between countries in the Gulf and Israel shouldn't ever have been a surprise to us. And I do think the Arab Peace Initiative, uh, the Beirut uh, 2002-03, was a wasted moment. Uh, Wasted, obviously, by the Israelis. I mean, they didn't trust it for when it came. Um, Wasted because the Arabs themselves didn't know how to operationalize a real initiative. And wasted by the international community that didn't jump on it and try to make something um, out of it. I think that the Israeli fears of the Arab Peace Initiative boil down to they thought it was prescriptive. You know, We have to do everything and pull out of all of Palestine, Syria, and Lebanon before we get anything in return. And in particular, we have to have full realization of the right of return. Every refugee who wants to come back, coming back to Haifa, to Jaffa, uh, to Ramallah, to wherever. I think that the Saudis have signaled, um, uh, even in an article by a senior Saudi prince in Haaretz magazine, a Haaretz magazine, uh, that it's not actually like that, uh, that they do understand that it's, it's not prescriptive, they would accept whatever was negotiated. Um, and I think, too, though I don't think the Saudis have said it, but you know, I'd be surprised now if the Saudis were to insist that the Golan had to go back to uh, Mr. Assad as a price for their peace with Israel. It doesn't somehow ring true. Um, so I think there's all sorts of possibilities there to make something real, um, confidence-building steps forward, bringing in the region. The trouble is, again, as Ian has gestured, how do you you gear that with resolution of the Palestinian issue? Now, actually, I think any of us can sit down with a bit of paper and design exactly how that should be done, but there's enormous mistrust um, to get over. I think the Israelis probably are hoping in some way to sideline the Palestinian issue to get to a regional peace. Um, They obviously talk it up. The Palestinians are certainly worried about somehow being sold out by the region, but I think the region, as I understand it, and there may be a lot more going on than I'm aware of it, um, won't actually um, sell out the Palestinians. They do need that for their own street, their own credibility, to be part of the equation. And I think, and this is where the sort of catch-22 of all this comes in, I think that what the Gulf and the Saudis care about most is Jerusalem because that's where the center of Islamic identity is caught up in all of this. And, of course, that is the very hardest thing for the Israelis. So although if you're going to design a peace process now, I think you've got to focus on the regional um, element, I also think it 's extraordinarily hard to do it, and would require real leadership have to come above all from the Americans, um, real imagination, real drive, and a very complex putting together of an equation and it would probably require real leadership from the Israelis and the Palestinians as well. Now, when I put all that together i don 't actually feel very optimistic Thank you very much <laughs> Thank you.
0: Right, we've been given a, a rich feast uh, around what is, Ian says, the most studied conflict in the world. We now move to questions, and you'll notice in that sentence the word of question. This is indeed a topic that brings, um, inflames emotion, but what I want from you is, is a question, um, which ends in a question mark and is rather short. So I shall collect groups of you, um, and then when I signal that uh, you've been recognized. The mic will come to you if you say who you are and then ask your short and succinct question. We'll move on to the next, that's great. Yes, you sit down on the front. Uh, Thanks very much. (coughs) My name's Jonathan Hoffman. Um, My question is the following. The Queen has never been to Israel in her 60 plus years of her reign. Uh, Does this speak volumes about the attitude of the Foreign Office Uh, Additionally, the Foreign Office, as you said, was very equivocal in terms of um, marking the centenary of the Balfour Declaration, although Theresa May, the Prime Minister, did say we should mark it with pride. So what does this say about the Foreign Office? Thank you, and thank you for the succinctness of your question. Next question. Yes, you, sir. The mic is coming to you now.
3: Thank you, uh, Dr. Black. um, My name is Joshua Cairn. You alluded to... Um, Zionist uh, Jewish tendencies towards separation uh, dating back to 1910 um, in your your remarks. And you also said that you weren't surprised that the word apartheid is is bandied about uh, nowadays. Um, There was less mention, um, if I'm correct to observe, of the Israeli preoccupation with security dating back um, to the Second World War, um 48 67 73 and onwards would you agree or not that security as opposed to separation it reflects the predominant jewish view um of the conflict um going back to 48
0: thank you and the final question in this round of three yes with the uh red jumper i suppose that would
3: Hiya, uh, my question is for Dr. Black as well. Um, you mentioned the uh, 1936-39 Arab rebellion, you called it um, heroic. I've always sort of seen that event as a bit of a blunder from, from the Arabs, um, in that they, uh, when, they, when they went on strike they gave up positions in the administration, and I always felt like they gave away power, really, um, and influence. And I just wonder um, how you view it as heroic?
0: Great, three excellent and succinct questions. What does the Queen's lack of visiting say about the FCO and the the ambiguous attitude towards Israel? Zionism, separatism, or bona fide concerns for security, and the 36, 39 Arab revolt as a blunder or a heroic blunder? Take it away, sir. Doesn't he get it? Well, he may, may, but (laughs) they're all addressed to you. So
1: on the Queen, um, I think that it probably represents some kind of ambivalence towards israel because of the failure to resolve the palestinian question I, mean, I don't know i have no access to you know the planners at buckingham palace or the foreign office i mean prince charles interestingly i think did go to israel but on a private visit recently because his is it his grandmother is yeah. buried on the mount of olives that's i think right. uh so I, I don't know the answer to right? he's not
0: the queen not yet no <laughs> that's true
1: so i don't know on the, the question about separation and uh, uh, yes, yeah, security and separation, I, mean, I think both are true. I think that it is quite clear. I mean, it's not a question of interpretation. I think the evidence is very clear that the Zionist movement set out in Palestine to create a separate and autonomous Jewish society. It wasn't its goal to live with the majority of the inhabitants of the country. I mean, you know, it's not a question of, it's not my opinion that's borne out by the facts. Security, of course, was also part of it. They go together. But uh, from very early on, I mean, you know, I can think of, there was a famous incident, for example, in, if you know Israel, you've heard of Rehovot, for example. Rehovot is now, you know, a medium-sized town south of Tel Aviv. It was one of the earliest of the Jewish colonies, as they were called, probably, I think, from the late 1890s. And in the early 20th century, uh, it developed quite rapidly into a significant uh, uh, center. And there was an issue about uh, Arabs who were employed as guards in the, in the colony, in the settlement, whatever you want to call it. Um, and there was violence. There was problems about pilfering, theft. There was probably arguments about land ownership as well, because that was also something that was very familiar. And the Arab guards in this place were replaced by Jewish guards. They were formed into an organization called Hashomer, which is Hebrew for the guard. And that was the sort of pattern of the way things happened. Jews wanted to live separately. There was some dependence, particularly early on, employing Arab labor, but over time that shifted. And it shifted also in an ideological sense. The the mainstream of the Zionist movement, which was the labor movement, actively worked to promote the employment of Jews instead of Arabs. So security and separation were two sides of the same coin would be my answer to that question. On 1936-1939, what I said was that it is viewed as a heroic period in Palestinian history. I agree with you, objectively. It played into the hands of the Jews. For example, one of the key elements of the Arab strike of 1936 was Jaffa port, which was then the main port in Palestine, uh, went on strike. and uh, The stevedores, the Arab stevedores of Arab uh, Jaffa downed tools and refused to work. So what happened? The Jews opened a port next door in Tel Aviv. Similar things happened in Haifa, the famous quarries. Uh, so yes, To a large extent, Arab responses played into the hands of that Jewish Zionist instinct to create uh, a separate society and economy. And also defense as well was also part of it. But it is remembered by Palestinians nevertheless as a period of uh, uh, heroism and so on and so forth. Tom.
2: Uh, Just to add in a way to Ian, I agree with what he said. I mean, um, I I don't work for the FCO anymore, so you must ask them and ask the, the palace as it were. Um, I don't think there was any um, I thought the Balfour Declaration, I mean the Prime Minister was very clear, you know, we're not going back, we're not apologizing for it, no question. You know, this thing's out there, we're proud of it and see it through. I don't know what the FCO is, I didn't know. In my own experience it's F-
1: unfinished
2: business. <coughs> is the Balfour Declaration unfinished business? Well I think it's fair enough to say that um, I mean I myself would say that the full realisation of the Balfour declaration is going to be a two-state solution. Because you've got nascent, in, you've got in the Belfort declaration that, in fact, I think they were put in, in the insistence of Edwin Samuel, weren't they? Or in Montague, the Secretary in Montague. Of state for India at the time, the Jewish member of the cabinet, um, because he, he put, insisted on that nothing must be done infringing upon the, uh, and the words are carefully chosen, rights of the Palestinian people. He doesn't say political rights. But I, this is what I meant when I said the Peel Commission is the first moment where the Brits really realise what they're up against, that you're up against two valid nationalisms here. So for me, the full realisation of the Balfour Declaration is a two-state solution, yes.
0: Right, more questions. I would also say
2: that when I was out there, yes, Prince Charles had visited, but I also hosted Prince Edward, who was out there with the Duke of Edinburgh uh, award scheme. He had a wonderful visit around Israel. Not
0: yet. Right. (laughs) More questions. I have neglected this side of the audience. Does anyone want to put their hand up? No. Ah, right, so I'll come but You, sir, and then you behind after that.
2: Tom, you said uh, something like the conflict by definition almost requires ex- the participation of a third party in its resolution. This is the key point I don't understand. Why is this particular conflict so intractable that the participants cannot themselves engage with each other, as has been done in many, many other so-called intractable conflicts around the world?
0: And if you
3: hand the microphone behind you, Thank you. Um, hi, Lindsay Simmons, a PhD research student in the Gender Institute and also uh, work in conflict negotiation in the Israel-Palestine region. Um, so with both of those hats on, um, I just wondered, especially you, Sir Tom, who feels that the uh, two-state solution is uh, floundering and possibly at an end, what you think of uh, the grassroots movements uh, of collaboration, The uh, Women Wage Peace, hand in hand, six schools, I think now, uh, especially the collaboration in the high-tech industry, uh, the Roots Movement in the Occupied Territories, the Bereaved Families Forum. These kind of grassroots movements, if you think that uh, they work towards a sort of post-two-state coexistence to uh, thinking about shared society, if you have any uh, optimism about those grassroots movements. Hello, uh, Susan Doyle, and um, I was just wondering, you had mentioned multiple times that the Americans would be the only third party that would be considered to negotiate, and I was wondering what other powers were you not considering, and why, especially since we've remarked the, the Donald Trump presidency and maybe the questionable respect of the Americans these days?
0: Can
2: I start on yeah, these? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Why can't the two parties do it on their own? And, of course, I think the, Palestinians, the Israelis especially say, well, we're ready for that um, any time, and it's the Palestinians who back out. The Palestinians are worried about that because they think it's not a level playing field, um, that essentially Israel has most of the assets that you're negotiating about in the stronger hand. They wouldn't, you know, if you just get a 50-50 deal before them, they lose out even more. And you've got to get into their narrative there that each time, you know, what you're negotiating about has got smaller. You can blame them for some of that. I'm not here to apologise for the Palestinians. I think they've got a pretty bad track record uh, on a lot of this. Um, But I do understand that they they worry about going into uh, an unlevel playing field. I also think at a deeper psychological level in negotiating terms, both sides are victims. I mean, both sides are genuine victims. This is not fake. But when your identity becomes based or victimhood becomes very critical to your sense of identity you do need help to go through the trauma to recognise the narrative of the other person. It's very, very difficult to do on your own, actually. Uh, And you need almost... I mean, I used to say you don't need diplomats in there, you need psychologists, uh, because they've got to go through a process of recognising the other person's narrative. And they haven't really started that yet, and that's one of the depressing things about it. Why do I think it has to be uh, the Americans? I think essentially because the Israelis won't trust anyone else. Um, and actually, I understand that. Um, they're not going to trust the EU. I mean, the EU, you know, they think, well, the moment something like Yom Kippur comes along, the EU immediately runs away and stops armed supplies. But Americans actually do put in some hardcore assistance. will stand by them. will provide that bottom line uh, security guarantee. And, of course, that for the Israelis with their very, very understandable uh, sense of insecurity uh, based on deep history is, you know, a place to be coming from. If you think of all the other people who might do it—Russians, Chinese—I mean, nobody actually can provide that degree of reassurance, and nobody could provide the sort of security underpinning of a peace deal that you're going to need in terms of real capacity um, on the ground. So, you know, I rationally conclude nobody else but the Americans, but the Americans can't actually do it in an even-handed way. They've tried, but I think there's actually things that they themselves, because of the way their political system is structured and all sorts of other things. I mean, everybody is (laughs) trapped in their political systems, and the political systems create huge limitations. I mean, I think the Palestinian political system is pretty dysfunctional, actually. Obviously, the uh, uh, Gaza-West Bank split in itself. The Israeli political system, low threshold proportional representation means you've always got a coalition government of whom one or two members are not going to let you move forward, so they're trapped. Whatever is happening, and that brings me on to the third point here, all those wonderful movements that are out there. I mean, I visited Hand in Schools, I know a lot of the movements that are being talked about here. There's some admirable people out there, some admirable people in all parts of both populations, not just in these grassroots movement. But I don't see them in current circumstances being of a size to get traction on the key political uh, debate. There's a very, very interesting new movement going on then called the Israeli Peace Initiative, which is trying to get traction for the Arab Peace Initiative and get a response going there. I do think that is interesting, that they're working in, in good ways. But even there, I do not think that getting to the heart of the political issues and all the timing issues. But I, you know, never give up. I and mean, I believe passionately in – sorry, I hate that word, passionately, it like politician. I believe uh, in um, – uh, you know, people talking to each other, getting to know each other over time. And I think, you know, you have to hope from small things, great things can grow. And there's some remarkable people out there. And, you know, I, you know the Foreign Office, one of my mottos in the Foreign Office was always, despair is not a policy option. Ian, yeah, on that note.
1: The um, <coughs> disparity between the two sides, you have to get a sense of that. I mean, the GDP per capita in Israel is, oh yeah, a couple of years ago at least, was, 10 times that of the West Bank, 20 times that of the Gaza Strip. Israel is a nuclear power. Palestinians have a few guys with machine guns. I mean, the disparity, the imbalance between the two sides is the fundamental reason why somebody has to be involved from uh, the outside. The Israelis would like nothing better than to be able to left to their own devices and dictate terms to the Palestinians. Would that produce a lasting and just settlement? I don't think so. Outside involvement is necessary. I think the larger question is in the age of Donald Trump whether the only power on earth that has the capacity to do it and has sufficient trust to do it is going to do anything at all except make it even worse. I mean, I think currently the signs are that that's exactly what's going to happen. So you have to have outside involvement because of that disparity. I mean, uh, American financial support for Israel alone is, what is it, $4 billion a year? I mean, Israel is the largest single recipient of U.S. aid of any country in the world. It therefore has leverage. Uh, there have been moments, though they've been rare, when the United States has acted to bring pressure on Israel, most effectively back in 1957, the year that not much else happened uh, in the conflict. There have been other moments too. In uh, The Israeli Prime Minister in 1991 was a man called Yitzhak Shamir, who was very, very hard Indeed, he was the former head of the Stern Gang from the uh, 1940s. He was basically uh, forced to go to the Madrid Peace Conference of 1991 because James Baker, the then U.S. Secretary of State, uh, said that they wouldn't cough up, I think, $10 billion in guarantees for loans to help support the absorption of Soviet Jewish immigrants. So leverage can work. The only country with the ability to exercise that kind of leverage is the United States. In the Donald Trump era, you know, we're in, a, like in everything else, uncharted territory. Um, the organizations you mentioned, Yad Biyad is a very impressive one. It's, the, it's a joint uh, Arab-Jewish school system, which may, doesn't, may not sound remarkable, but in the context of Israel, it is absolutely remarkable. But again, the numbers of people involved are tiny, and I have to agree with Tom reluctantly that those kind of grassroots organizations, organizations, however well-meaning they are, and there are some very impressive people, are not enough to shift the significant majorities on both sides who are just not into that kind of thing. I think one of the worst things that's happened in recent years is a sort, of, it's a sort of paradox. For the 20 years from 1967 to 1987, there was a lot of contact between Palestinians and Israelis, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians worked in Israel. I remember very vividly at the beginning of the first intifada with some you know, hell hole in Gaza. My friend Charles sitting next to you remembers it well. Uh, there would be Israeli troops with their, you know, their riot gear, rubber bullets and batons, and 100 yards away there'd be groups of Palestinian kids throwing stones, and they'd be taunting the Israelis in fluent uh, Hebrew in the worst language imaginable, the worst curses possible, because they knew the language. After 2000, after the Second Intifada, that stopped. Palestinians don't work in Israel anymore in large numbers. The separation wall is there. The two societies have moved further apart, the Palestinians encounter Israeli settlers, soldiers, secret preachers, that's it. So that's another part of the problem.
0: I very much agree with that. Right. Uh, you, sir, then you, sir, and then you two. We'll take four along. Um, Said Kamalide uh, uh, right about Iran for The Guardian. Um, question for Ian. Um, how do you compare the views held by um, younger Israelis towards peace and the views held by their fathers and their mothers? Um, and also the same with Palestine. How do you compare the views held by the younger Palestinians about peace with Israel compared to their fathers and mothers? Are they more progressive? Or are they more um, open to the idea of peace or not? Thank you. i just pass it along. Do you think there's any hope in the apparent rapprochement between Hamas and Fatah? Nice, succinct question. That's great. Very good. And then we had two questions along the way. Yeah. Uh, Richard Norton Taylor, former colleague of Ian. I wanted to really ask how deep the distrust of the British uh, is uh, amongst Palestinians, really. I think in one or two episodes, which we used to talk about, it, um, and then Lawrence of Arabia, I don't know if that any impact at all F- feeling of betrayal then and also what we now know about the Suez crisis uh, I know Egypt was involved, not Palestine and such but the suspicion really the, how deep the suspicion and, of uh, the British. Martin, you had a question? Yes indeed, uh, Martin Mullicott, another former colleague. <laughs> I'd like to ask uh, in terms of the shifting broader landscape uh, in the Middle East um, a new and stronger or a stronger actor much stronger actor than in the past in the shape of Iran. What uh, either of the two speakers think the more rational side of the Iranian uh, regime has in mind or thinks about in terms of uh, the future of Israel. I mean, the Israeli government clearly is obsessed with the notion that, or professes to be obsessed with the notion that Iran is an existential threat. Um, do we, can we say anything about that? Excellent. So you've got four questions this round. One is, has there been a, is there a change between what younger Israeli and Palestinians think about peace to their mothers and fathers? Any hope for the Hamas-Fatah rapprochement? Um, how deep is the distrust amongst Palestinians and Israel towards Britain? And what does Iran want and what is their influence in both in Palestine and first and then Tom. Well,
1: Saeed, I mean, I think actually the previous questioner made sort of the same point. I think that the more time goes on, I think the evidence is clear from polling that young Israelis are further to the right than their parents' generation was. I, mean, I forget the precise statistic, it's somewhere in the book towards the end. But if you, uh, if you look at the views of young Israeli Jews, and it's important to make a distinction between Jews and Arabs, whether they're Israeli, if they're Israeli citizens, uh, there is deep mistrust. There is a denial of the existence of what is correctly called the occupation because of the structure of Oslo and so on and so forth. Uh, and on the Palestinian side uh, is exactly the point I was trying to make. There's very little contact with Israelis. Palestinians who live in the occupied territories if you're, a, if you're somebody who has grown up in Gaza, if you're a 20-year-old in Gaza uh, today, you've almost certainly never left the Gaza Strip. Your life has been spent in an area which is, for those of you who don't know, four miles wide by 20 miles long. You, your education would have been fairly limited. Your unemployment prospects are close to zero. Uh, you've never seen an Israeli unless perhaps you were there, uh, unfortunately enough, to be in the, one of the last three wars and were involved, as you highly likely were, uh, highly likely were, in 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 in, in seeing uh, the conflict from the sharp end. Two thousand two hundred people were killed in Gaza in the war of uh, two thousand and fourteen. So attitudes are hardening on both sides amongst young people. The Hamas-Fatah uh, reconciliation process, I think, is very interesting. I think it's quite limited in what it can do. I think. Uh, one reason to hope that it will succeed is not actually because of the big issues of war and peace, but because it may do something to improve the appalling humanitarian situation in Gaza, again, where there are 2 million people. It can do that because uh, if the Palestinian Authority (coughs) has a greater role inside Gaza, then that eases the blockade. The opening of the border with Egypt can also help uh, do that. Whether it can make uh, a difference on the, sort of the larger political issues is a much more difficult question. Hamas, its name means the Islamic resistance movement. Uh, the issue of its weapons is a very significant one. Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president, made clear from the start that Hamas has to uh, – there can only be one, one gun, as he put it. Hamas is unlikely to be able to uh, feel that it can give that up. So limited significance possibly for ordinary people. In terms of advancing the peace process, I have to say I'm dubious. Richard. Um, It was really interesting in the period of the Balfour Declaration centenary just recently, it really did stir up that resentment of what the British did. The Balfour Declaration uh, is referred to in in Arabic as that calamitous declaration. It is associated with the worst sort of colonial high-handedness that ignores the wishes of the natives. A demand was made for an apology. The British government was quite rattled by that, which is one of the reasons why, actually, the events marking the centenary were rather low-key. There were no British events marking the centenary of the Balfour Declaration. There was The reception was held at the British Embassy in Tel Aviv. Uh, that was an event hosted by Lords Rothschild and Balfour and attended by Theresa May and other British That's guests. It wasn't, a, um, it wasn't a British government event. So actually, they were quite aware of the toxicity of it, and they said they made that point, and I actually do very much agree with Tom that that line. Actually, quite a good line about the unfinished business. The Balfour Declaration promised not to prejudice the rights of existing non-Jewish communities. Palestinians remember it, uh, and they remember it bitterly. Syria, I think, is, is less of a an issue these days. It's only old, old people like you and me who remember it. <laughs> and finally, Iran. Martin. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting issue. I remember uh, actually being in Tehran, with very you know, lucky timing, about the week before the nuclear agreement was signed in uh, Vienna, wasn't it? I think, in, yeah, Vienna, in the summer of 2015. And, you know, as the, you do, as a visiting journalist, you know very well, you know, you do the rounds and you get interviews. And, ooh, I had a good interview with the man who was the deputy foreign minister, who was widely described as the representative of the Revolutionary Guards in the Iranian foreign ministry, Abdullahian, right? Hossein Amir Abdullahian. Amir Hossein Abdullahian. So we talked about the nuclear deal and so on and so forth. And I, you know, I did what people like you trained me to do. I asked, you know, the kind of difficult questions. But what about this and what about that and what about Hezbollah and what about what you're doing in Syria and all those things that are described correctly as Iran's very active policies across the Middle East. And he wouldn't give an inch on any of those. Now, the Israelis, the Saudis, of course, were vigorously opposed to the Iranian nuclear deal. And the whole point about the Iranian nuclear deal is that it deals with an extremely important issue but in a very narrow way. It doesn't go beyond that. And what's you know? I don't know what the Iranians want to do. I mean, ask Saeed. Uh, we, we should talk about it afterwards. I, I don't really know what they intend. I find it hard to imagine that the Iranians are prepared to coexist with Israel. Are they? I see no sign of that whatsoever. It's also true that Netanyahu, in particular, uses the Iranians as a bogey, and his own experts. I can think of at least two or three senior Israeli security figures, people with illustrious pasts in the Mossad or whatever, who say, no, you're wrong. The existential threat for Israel, the existential problem, is the Palestinian issue. The Iranians are not the issue. That appears to be changing now in the light of various things that have happened recently in Syria, Iraq. And Trump, of course, is also very much part of that story as well.
2: Tom. Um. Uh, Just two points to add to to Ian. I mean, the the, the issue about young Palestinians, young Israelis, older Palestinians, old Israelis, you know, like in any society, I think there's any simple answer to that. Um, You know, there's lots of different communities uh, out there, and you can get quite radically different answers. Um, But I've been struck, and it chimes a bit with what Ian was saying, the last time I was out there uh, in May this year, um, talking to young Palestinians, okay, fairly... Uh, you know, PhD level Palestinians um, uh, and you know, they were saying our fathers fought a great fight but let's face it they failed and they made a few mistakes on the way um, we're tired of having to travel to Iman to get out of here um, can, uh, they think it's time for a one state solution could I introduce them to some young Israelis um, uh, when you go and talk to most young Israelis you know, not the people in Breaking the Silence and all the rest of it um, I think, as Ian said, the, the wall is a real psychological barrier now um, they 're actually further away. the distrust of the Arab world in generally in general has gone up, and so there 's a disconnect I think between at least some younger Palestinians thinking time has come for a one state solution two state solution is over, and in fact, most young Israelis being very very far away from that in terms of what they 're thinking so I think there 's something quite interesting happening out there um, iran uh, i mean i 've been to a But I don't know it well. My my working assumption as a diplomat is always that everybody is a rational player. It's just you don't understand their rationality. I don't think people people are dumb, and I don't think people are suicidal on the whole. I mean, there are exceptions in history, as we know. Um, So my assumption was always with Iran that it didn't... I don't know how much they really cared about the Israeli issue, but they saw the Palestinian issue as a very useful counter in the geostrategic struggle in which they're engaged for a wider regional role. So if that's right, they don't want a war because they know that an an actual push-out war, they'd be thumped very hard by Israel and even more by the Americans. So my starting assumption has always been the Iranians don't want push to come to shove, but they'll play as much as possible for regional advantage because they know too that they can embarrass um, the Gulf States and others by saying well you've never really done, done much for the Palestinians but we're now their real champions and have, in their minds peeled to the quotes Arab street over the Arab leaders um, by doing so the one serious question mark I have about it all at the moment is in the the, the wake of Syria and Iraq as and when we get there um, I, I think watch Lebanon uh, I think I'm worried uh, and if things are going to, you know, I think there's plenty of scope for that to go wrong and you know, in any conflict situation, um, putting aside what I said about rationality, there can always be miscalculation uh, by rational players, and that can lead to irrational outcomes.
0: Right, we've got five minutes left, and I'll take anyone who hasn't asked a question but would like to. Very eager hand there at the back. Thank you.
2: To pick up on a, a few points from Tom, you spoke about getting to the heart of the political issue and understanding one another's narratives. One thing that we haven't spoken about for the entire evening and indeed is often omitted from these discussions is the sort of core ideas central to the peripheral political things that are going on and that's religion. Why is that often omitted from this conversation? Why is it seen as so sacred and how can we actually use that as a catalyst to foster tolerance? Yeah. Excellent,
0: right. thank you. And uh, Keep your hand up, a microphone will magically arrive at your.
3: Hi, my name is Majd. Um, Given the recent uh, situation, political and economic situation, the West Bank uh, recently, in the recent years, do you think that um, the West Bank is going towards a third intifada in the coming uh, few years? Thank you.
0: Excellent. Anyone else? Yeah,
3: there you go. Um, Hi. I was wondering um, from either speaker if they thought that uh, the BDS movement um, was changing anything in Israel and if the growing number of young Jews in America um, who did not support the Israeli state would change anything as well.
0: Excellent. So we have three final questions which will allow you to sum up and say erudite things that will persuade people to buy your book um the first is religion is often omitted is there a role for religion in the settlement uh the second is is a third intifada coming and the final one is has the boycott and disinvestment movement changed anything in israel or amongst young jews in the united states uh ian and then no i'll well, tom's first and i'll give ian the final
2: can i take the first one then ian take the second two and then we, we can both chip on each other's but i'm just really really interested in that first one Uh, on the religious one. I've got views on the others, but that's another issue. Zionism originally starts as a secular movement. And why don't we go to Uganda or Argentina? Uh, But very quickly they realize it has to be Israel, next year in Jerusalem. Even for the secular people, the myth, the energizing narrative is religious. And actually Zionism is unimaginable without that imperative, that, that, that drive. And I do think that peace movements have made a serious mistake in not trying to tap into the energies, the myths, the narratives on both sides. You know, God promised it to us. Well, now to the Euphrates or whatever. You know, whack, Holy Land can never be given up. You know, once we've got it, don't know what that leaves Spain, but, you know, that's another uh, issue. So there is an issue there. And I think from some of the work that we did when I was out there. I think there's more that can be done. I think there is scope for theological compromise that could be a major driver in in a peace initiative. Um, And I won't go into that. If you want to catch afterwards, I'll go through it. But I think there's some arguments on both sides that both have evolved that would provide something that could happen there. I know more about the Israeli side than I do about the Arab side. But it's very, very hard. The trouble is that there's no Pope on either side. It's a very, very... Um, scattered religious field. And so you've got to look at, you know, the Imams and the Rabbis, the the trusted people. And they are, although certainly in Israel, the religious parties are quite powerful, they're not actually the people who get you into this level. You have to go elsewhere. And making that group of people politically active has so far uh, eluded everyone, I think, and is very, very difficult. But I personally think if I'm redesigning a peace initiative now... I would really want to be exploring some of that. I think there is some very, very useful stuff there that hasn't yet been been used.
0: Ian, two minutes. Is the Third Intifada coming? What has the BDS movement done? Why should they buy your book?
2: <laughs> Not necessarily in that
1: order. The Third Intifada, I think that, um, of course, ever since the, what is it, a couple of years now, we've had what has been described as the Intifada of knives, the spate of uh, stabbing attacks and so on and so forth. Um, it's not whatever, – whatever you call that, that is not a threat to Israel's control of the, uh, of the West Bank. Um, the Palestinian Authority cooperates on security matters with Israel, which is one of the reasons why it's very uh, unpopular. Uh, I, I think the larger question is about the future of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, of course, there are lots of people now, increasingly young people, uh, saying that the Palestinian Authority ought to be dissolved. There are often calls for um, the end to security cooperation between the PA and Israel, which is arguably its most important function, by the way. Um, so I think that the sporadic low-level violence is likely to continue. I mean, it's often, you look at these, you look at the, the details of these attacks, very often the people, uh, the perpetrators are described in some way as disturbed or mentally ill or whatever. There, obviously there are sad stories behind the headlines of violence. So it seems to me that it is likely to continue while there is no prospect of any significant change, but not to the extent that it is going to threaten uh, Israeli control. Um, uh, BDS is a really interesting uh, question. The Israeli government is really quite rattled by BDS. We all know about the efforts they're making to try to combat it. Um, I think it uh, has a couple of things going for it. The first of those is it is a non-violent movement. It is non-violent resistance against an intolerable situation, certainly better than uh, the loss of uh, innocent lives. Uh, Whether it has the capacity to achieve what its supporters want is a different matter. Uh, I don't have the impression that it does. I don't think it's going to get sufficient traction or indeed any traction with governments who matter more than other people, individual financial institutions. I still believe myself that there is some mileage in what is generally described as the policy of differentiation between Israel and the occupied territories to say that produce of settlements, profits from settlements should be the legitimate targets for sanctions. I think that has more chance of affecting things than the BDS movement, which, you know, again, is the subject of controversy because it sometimes slips over into arguments about delegitimization and anti- anti-Semitism, as we know. So I think that targeted sanctions are likely to be more effective than that.
0: All right, thank you. Um, a few announcements before we um, close. Uh, I have forgot to mention it before, but Ian will be signing the books that you buy outside. It's just before a festive season, so buy two, I certainly am going to, uh, for your relatives. He won't be talking to anyone who doesn't arrive at the table without a book, so keep that in mind as you file out. Secondly, there is a reception, kindly paid for by the uh, publishers, so have a, a glass of wine and some peanuts or some soft drinks, and you can discuss with Ian once you bought the book, and with Sir Tom, uh, who isn't selling a book tonight, so he'll probably do it for cheaper. Um, Finally, you've put your coats and bags in the cloakroom, which will shut at 8.30, so if you forget to pick them up, we'll raffle them off tomorrow, so please don't do that. And most importantly, it's all thank you for coming on this winter's night, but thank our two speakers. We'll be next